Thank you for that music and thank you for that verse as well. Both powerful and both the truth, all of it the truth. Will you bow with me as we get ready to hear from the Word of God? Father, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful that you have a church, Lord, a people that you have called out of the darkness, called out from the dominion of Satan and into the light and into eternal life in the kingdom of your marvelous light. Lord, I pray that as we hear from your word, that you will please help us, Lord, to love you more. I pray that you would help us also to be encouraged. Lord, I don't even have to guess that probably many of us have come in here with weights upon us in one way or another. Lord, one preacher once said that we're all under-encouraged So, Father, I pray that you would use your word to encourage us this morning and encourage some to be saved. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Well, I think all of you know that in the past, um, our family, we were missionaries to Central America, the country of Belize. What I did there as a missionary was I taught and trained pastors and church leaders in the Bible and in theology, here's just one time where we got a picture of me teaching some of the men under a thatched roof there. And the course that I would take the people through was a, a two-year Bible training on, on 10 different subjects. And we would study things like Bible study methods, Old Testament, New Testament, major Bible doctrines, church history, uh, church governance, how do, we, how do we do church even, all types of things. Well... My goal at the end of that two years of training for these different people, pastors and church leaders, was that I would create a student who was well-rounded in Scripture, who had been exposed to, to good Christian literature, some of these great books that we have from of old that every good Christian, I think, should have in his or her library. Also, that this person was not only committed to the truth in the church, but committed to the truth in the home and was making a difference in the community by carrying those things out into the world. That was the goal at the end of the two years of training. Well, what I found was when I was looking for students for the first two-year course, because I ended up taking two groups of students because we were there for um, almost five years, was one of my first students, his name was Gideon. What I found was in this man, that, that's him there on the right with his family. What I found was he was basically already at the point in his Bible knowledge, in his godliness, in his commitment to the truth in his home, in his commitment to share the truth with others. He was already basically at the point where I was hoping my students would get at the end of the two years of training. He was already there when I met him. Now, I didn't realize that this was such an anomaly until we kept living there month after month. I, when I met him, I was kind of used to being around people who were committed to the truth, who knew the Word of God pretty well, who had already been exposed to good Christian literature, and who were committed to it in their home, too. I was kind of used to that, being from the States and having just come out of seminary, basically, and I didn't realize what an anomaly he was until we kept living there. And I was in the culture of a people who 
were not committed to the truth. By and large, even some people who called themselves pastors were living with women that they weren't married with, married to. Um, we even had a pastor who just lied to me, right to my face, and then I had to confront him about that later. We had a pastor who was in a situation of church discipline, a situation that you'd be shocked. It wasn't anything sexually immoral, but it was just a situation that you'd say, wow, I, I wouldn't expect him to, to do anything like that. And just the flavor of the society was just very blah when it came to church and religion. Even though they, a lot of them went to church pretty rarely, but if you went into those churches, you'd see there's not any life here. There's just, this is just a mess. So the longer I lived there, the more I realized, where on earth did Gideon come from? Because I'm not meeting anyone else that's as devoted to the truth as he is, that is carrying it out in his home as much as he does, that knows the truth as much as he does, that's committed to reading these good Christian books as he is. I had not met anyone else. Even the whole time we were there, I had not been, though I met other people that were godly and other people that lived out the truth, no one to the level of Gideon, who was already, when I met him, where I was hoping my students would eventually be one day. And I was just taken aback by how the Holy Spirit had gripped this man. He stood out more and more the longer we lived there. That's what I'm trying to say. It's just, where did this guy come from? The book of Ruth is kind of like that. I don't know if you've ever heard of this plant called a water lily. A water lily is a beautiful flower that will grow in swampy, nasty water. What all is around it, you wouldn't want to swim in that water. You wouldn't even want to wade through it sometimes. It is gross and disgusting, yet a water lily can grow up in this foul environment. The book of Ruth is like that. When I think about the book of Ruth, I think about a water lily growing up in a swamp. Why do I think that? Well, because the very first seven words of this book, in the days when the judges ruled. This book takes place during the time of the judges. That's what's so amazing about this book. It stands out more. You might read this book and say, wow, that's beautiful. Look at the providential hand of God at work in these circumstances. It starts out very bad. Then we see, oh, look at this. There's a kinsman redeemer. And then, oh, look, it ends up being a really beautiful story. It starts out kind of tragic and with death. And then it ends with, with joy and, and life. It's a beautiful book. But then when you realize when it was happening it becomes even more beautiful. It's like that water lily growing up in a swamp. If you just held a water lily, you might say, wow, this is a beautiful flower. But then when you get it in the context of the swamp, you say, well, now it's even more beautiful. It's kind of like Gideon when I first met him. It was like, wow, he's, he's very godly. And the longer I lived there, I realized he's more godly than anyone else in this entire town of 6,000 people. I've not met anyone else of Four and a half years we were there, never met anyone more godly than Gideon. And so that's what the book of Ruth is like. It's beautiful all by itself. And then when you realize what it was in, it becomes even more beautiful. And we appreciate it even more. What you're going to find as we read through this book is it's just got a totally different flavor from what we're used to reading. No hint, not even a whiff of any idolatry. 
happening with the people of Israel in this book. It's going to be nice to go through this book because we were walking through a swamp in Judges, and it was just downright depressing sometimes. We learned a lot from it. We learned a whole lot from it, mainly what we shouldn't do. And then here in this book, it's going to be very refreshing. I have just enjoyed reading it already because no one's worshiping an idol. (laughs) I'm like, praise Jesus. (laughs) Finally, (laughs) people who are godly. This is really great. This first sermon of this book, because we're going to walk through the whole book, of course. I'm going to try to get it in in four sermons because there's four chapters. I've titled this one this morning, Behind a Frowning Providence, God Hides a Smiling Face. Behind a Frowning Providence, God Hides a Smiling Face. Some of you might say, I know where he got that from. Uh, The rest of you are going to learn at the end of the sermon. Chapter 1 sets the stage for the book, and if we were watching this as a play, we'd be struck with the props on the stage. Why do I say that? Well, the props would be ominous. They would paint a picture of tragedy. What do I mean? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 5 together. In in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, already, starting off, we have famine, we have death, and then we have more death. This is a sad situation. The picture is being painted here in a dark way. There would be lots of black and gray and and dark brown. This is a a sad beginning situation to our narrative here. And it's supposed to be that way because we're going to see how God turns it around later, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. The beginning is famine and death. And this later on leads to hopeless feelings of Naomi and it later leads to self-pity as well, which we're going to see. But I like that we've got this chapter. It's not fun to walk through. It's sad. But I like that we've got this chapter because we've been in places like this. Maybe you've not had this much death in your family, but some of you have. Some of you sitting here right now mourn the loss of a loved one, thinking about him or her right now, I'm sure, as I'm saying these words. You mourn that loss. You've walked through death. You've been through a situation that you would say was hopeless. You've had feelings like Naomi is about to express here. She goes back to the land where she's from because she hears, hey, it's better back in Bethlehem. I'm hearing that the famine is not as severe there. Let's leave. What else do we have here? We have nothing else here. It's her now and her daughters-in-law. Three widows all together. And as you know, it just doesn't fare well for widows in that day. That's why in the Bible we're told to 
take care of orphans and widows. Why? Because these were the lowest in society. These had hardly any help. And so what do they do? Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she says, hey, there's, there's food there. There's, there's not any here. Let's go back there. So she set out for, from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now, she is committed to going back. However, she's older than these two younger ladies who were with her. Remember, they've been there for 10 years. The two younger sons that are now dead have married these Moabite women. By the way, it wasn't against God's law for them to marry Moabite women. Um, The Moabites were from Lot, Abraham's nephew Lot. He's the one who had the son named Moab. So these Moabites are connected to the people of Israel. It wasn't against God's law for these men to marry these women. It would have been, though, there was something in the law of God that would have prohibited their sons, should they have had any, from being able to have full access in the temple since, the, since these daughters were uh, Moabite women. But just the marrying of them, there was no law against that. So they're not sinning. As we saw in the book of Judges, they were intermarrying with people they should not be. Well, there was no prohibition against them marrying The older woman, though, Naomi, is looking at these two women probably in their 20s because they've been there for 10 years. I'm just guessing. They're still in their 20s. She looks at them, and she basically says, why would you go back with me? You're both from Moab. Stay here. Go back to where you're from. Go remarry among your people. Go back home. You left your home to come live with us, but now the whole reason why you came here is gone. Why don't you just go back? So, she makes this point. Seems logical. Look at verse 12. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She's basically saying, if you want to stay in the family, you would remarry the next youngest son. But even if I was pregnant tonight... Would you wait the 18 years until they were of marrying age and then marry them to basically stay in the family with sons? No, my daughters. For No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Notice, first of all, she's mentioned no hope. Now she's saying God's hand is against me. We're going to pick up on that in just a second. But then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah says, first of all, no, we're going to stay with you. Then Naomi gives her case. This is why I don't think you should come with me. Orpah says, okay, I guess I see your logic there. And she goes back home. Ruth, however, says, no, I'm going to stay with you no matter what. And what she says next is, is very touching. But let me read this to you from R.C. Sproul, what he had to say about this topic. Naomi's love for her daughters-in-law and her reaction to bitter experiences at God's hand dominate this scene. Yes, they do. The women must decide what factors will determine their paths. Finding a husband and having children, living in one's own country, 
being close to one's own family, or finally, for Ruth, trusting in the Lord as sovereign God. Ruth's decision and her irrevocable vow of fidelity to Naomi's people and her God says much about the impact of Naomi's character and faith in her daughter-in-law. Listen to this. Listen to what Ruth says to her. Verse 15. And she said, See, this is from Naomi, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to stay, stay with her, she said, no more. This is really, this is, this is huge. Why, because I was wondering, why would this 20-year-old look up to this probably 40 or 50-year-old with such devotion, such loyalty, and say, I am with you to the end. I am with you till death. Wherever you go, I'll be right by your side. Your people, those are going to be my people. Your God, he's going to be my God. Notice Naomi earlier said, go back to your gods, because the people around them all worship their gods, which we know. This is during the time of the judges. But what does Ruth say? Your God will be my God. She has forsaken the gods of the land. She says, I'm going to worship the same God you do. Why would she say that? This character, she must have seen something in Naomi's character. I mentioned earlier that I went to seminary. There were, there were men that I heard about from other parts of the country that came to the seminary that I was going to in Kentucky because there was a certain professor that they wanted to sit under. This certain professor, because a lot of the professors there at the um, seminary I went to had written books and uh, contributed to commentaries and things like that. They were well known in that world. And they said, I have attended this seminary because I wanted to sit under this man. I want to learn right from him. We all, I think, have had people in our lives that we've really looked up to, we've really admired, and we've done great things to be around that person as much as we can because we wanted to be like that person. There was something about that person that we said, no, what you do, I'm going to do. If you say do this, then I'll do it. I'll take your advice through whatever. I trust you. I want to be like you. And that's what Ruth sees in Naomi, even when Naomi is hopeless. Even when Naomi is saying things that are wrong, she's saying, God's forsaken me. God has, has done these bad things to me. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. No, it can feel that way though, can it? Even Naomi's hopeless feelings and her wrong thoughts being voiced that God was against her, they weren't enough to keep Ruth from seeing and knowing what was really true about Naomi. They weren't enough to keep Ruth from seeing what was really true about Naomi and being loyal to her. Ruth admired this character and faith of Naomi, nonetheless, wanted to be like her. Why do I say that? Well, I say this to say this. If you're a true Christian in this room this morning and you have a long track record of faithfulness to God, even in your failures, your true character can still shine through. If you're a Christian, 
You've got this long track record of being devoted and faithful to God. Even in your failures, even in your hopelessness, even when you mouth things that aren't true, like, oh gosh, I wish God's against me, apparently. Let me say this, let me to encourage you, even in those times, your true character can still shine through because it's, those times don't define you. Those are seasons. And there can be young people that still will look up to you and admire you and want to be like you because you're mimicking God. That's why we call people godly because they're being like God. Well, unfortunately, the circumstances were hard and the wounds were deep. And so Naomi's feelings of hopelessness now turn into self-pity in this next portion. Look at this, verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because, because of them. Remember, this is Naomi's hometown. So they're like, oh, look, she's back. It's been over 10 years since we've seen her. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which by the way means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She was so distraught, and she was feeling so much self-pity that she wanted to change her name. Don't even call me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's what I want all of you to call me now. That's how I feel. I, would, I want to change my name. Call me bitter because the Lord has, felt, has dealt bitterly with me. She was in just self-pity. And she's not the only one who's gone through things like that. There were time, times when Moses was just so distraught with everything that was going on with the people of Israel and so upset about it all, and by what God was telling him to do and, and keep doing, they said, God, why don't you just kill me? Also, the prophet Jonah had similar things too at the end of the book of Jonah. Just, just, just let me die. Self-pity. We sometimes get in moods like that. Thank the Lord they're temporary. They don't last Forever. And chapter 1 is supposed to be showing us here on purpose the, the bitter providence that falls upon Naomi. It was. I mean, this is, this is tragic. You move from a famine to go find a better place. You get there. Your husband dies. The longer you stay there, then your sons die, both of them. you would truly be feeling down and distraught and displaced and maybe even hard-hearted because so much has gone against you, so much. You might have feelings like, we were just trying to move to a place where we can eat and not die. Then you take the three sources of our income. God, why are you against me? That's why she says the hand of the Lord has gone out 
against me. That's why she says the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, because that's all she's feeling. But she's just in chapter 1. She can only see chapter 1. She doesn't see God's providence working through all this. God is accomplishing his redemptive purposes behind these bitter circumstances. Let me say that again. God is accomplishing his bitter, I mean, his redemptive purposes behind these bitter circumstances. Some of you maybe are in chapter one right now. There's more chapters. I know there's more chapters for the Christian. I know there's more chapters for the Christian because God works all things together for the good to those for those who love him and who are the called according to his purposes. And guess what? That verse is true. I don't care how you feel because your feelings change from Monday to Friday, don't they? You wake up Monday, ugh. Friday, you clock out, yes. Your feelings are so fickle, horribly fickle. Don't live in your feelings. They will deceive you. Plus, your feelings are the devil's playground. He works in the feeling world, but he doesn't work in the truth world. The truth world's better than the feeling world, okay? Your feelings go up and down, back and forth, left and right, north and south, and east and west, sometimes all in the same day, (laughs) right? Some of you might be in chapter one right now, and there's still a chapter two and three and four. And I can promise you right now, I can promise you, What you know from chapter 4, because you've read this book, Naomi was not ever even dreaming would have come about. Not ever even dreaming. Ever. Was not on her radar anywhere. All she can see is, call me bitter. Don't ever call me anything else. Don't even speak the word pleasant anymore. There's nothing pleasant in my life right now. Bitter only. That's all she can feel at that moment. That's all she can feel. She's just in chapter 1, though. There was a gentleman named um, William Cooper, no, Cowper, I'm sorry, William Cowper. He lived in the 1700s. He was a contemporary to a man that you've probably heard of, this man, John Newton. Um, John Newton, before he was saved and a minister, was a slave trader. He wrote different hymns. One of his most famous, I don't know if you've ever heard of this one, it's called Amazing Grace. I don't know if you've ever heard of that hymn. Well, John Newton wrote that hymn, and he was friends with William Cowper, who also wrote poems, but also wrote hymns. Over 80 different hymns William Cowper ended up writing. William Cowper had a hard life like Naomi. His mom died when he was only five. Uh, He was sort of a a frail um, young man who was very tender emotionally, And in school, he was bullied very badly. We know from his writings that there was an older boy who was very, very mean to him and just seemed to take great pleasure in how mean he could be to him. We don't know for sure. It may have even been some sexual abuse, but we don't know. He just doesn't ever write that out. But it it could have been even to those levels. William Cowper only ever fell in love with one young lady and was not allowed to marry her. And he never married for the rest of his life. And guess what? She she actually never did either. Never ever married anyone. He went to law school later on. 
was apparently really good at law, but in order to get a a position working in law, he was going to have to go through an examination and, and, and be questioned as to his knowledge of this topic. And that terrified him so much, sitting there and being questioned about just his knowledge of, of law so that he can get a job in this. He never pursued it. That's how fearful he was. That's how just gripped he was by fear and by his emotions. He struggled with depression, even as a Christian, horribly. He had a hard life. And sometimes hard circumstances can just make you hard or make you down or make you bitter. Listen to what Pam Larson, she, she wrote a really good um, article here about the night that William Cowper was going to end his life. This is from BibleDaily.org. Pam Larson wrote this. The night was dark and foggy. A man walked in the darkness from his house to the cobblestone street. Remember, this is in the 1700s in, and in London. His steps determined and relentless. But his face, had anyone been able to see it, was, uh, had anyone been able to see it in the dark, was tear-stained and weary. As he reached the street, he peered both ways, looking for the telltale lantern of a horse-drawn London cab. The man muttered, nothing. Am I too late? But no, I must end all tonight. And the river it must be. Then in the distance he espied a hazy light. Slowly enlarging, almost whispering, the man said, bit, said bitterly, God, you provided me no solace, but here you provide the cab to take me to my death. Where to? asked the cabbie. London Bridge, the man said. A cold night it is, sir. What sort of business have you at the bridge at this hour? But the man said nothing. The cabbie ended his attempt at conversation and set off toward the well-known destination. But the fog became thicker and thicker so that the cabbie could not even see his horse's nose. What should have been a 20-minute ride lasted an hour. And still, there was no sign of the river or the 600-year-old bridge. The cabbie peered into the fog, desperately looking for some familiar sign. Suddenly, the fog lifted. The passenger startled looked to his right, and saw to his amazement his own home. The cab, lost in the fog, had circled back to the very place he began the journey. My God, you have answered me, William cried out. Later that night, by his own hearth, the man William, one of England's greatest 18th century poets, meditated on Psalm 77 and wrote this great poem, which we have now turned into a hymn. And this is what the poem says. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable means, minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, feelings. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Isn't that good? He wrote that on the night he meant to take his own life. And God providentially hindered him and providentially hindered a cabbie 
whose job it was to carry people around London, the London he knew like the back of his hand, to swirl all the way back an hour later to the very place he started? Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The emotions, the feelings that we sometimes have being abandoned by God, we sometimes have those feelings that God's abandoned us. They were had by Naomi. They were had by William Cowper. You've probably also had those feelings too. If you haven't experienced them yet in your life, you, you just might someday. But in Isaiah 55, God tells us, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. See, the ways of God, the ways he chooses to work sometimes, they're beyond us. They're mysterious to us. We question them. And let me tell you this, you might never get the answer. You might not ever get the answer in this life. Why this, God? He sometimes takes us through the storm. Or he sometimes pins us between the sea and the army like he did for the people of Israel. Sometimes he'll walk us through the valley of the shadow of death like David. Or make us cry out like the psalmist did in Psalm 22 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very phrase that Jesus took up on his lips when he was upon the cross, which if you didn't know that, he was, just, he was quoting Psalm 22. So even our Lord Jesus, in his flesh, in his humanness, felt forsaken by God. Even Jesus looked up at the face of his Father and saw a, a frowning providence at one Point, but we know behind that was the smiling face of the resurrection and all who put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ are saved from their sins and will only see that smiling face in heaven one day because of what Jesus did for us, being forsaken for us, truly forsaken for us. You, Christian, will never be, safe, be forsaken truly. Never. You might feel that way sometimes, but again, it's a feeling. We don't live in our feelings. We live in the truth. The devil wants to tempt you to live in your feelings because, oh, he can manipulate your mind so well. He is a master. He's so masterful at it that some of you are even deceived now and don't know it, perhaps. That's how good he is. But others of us are convinced of the truth of the word of God, and we stand on it. We don't live in our feelings. We live on the truth. But William, as William Cowper saw, I may be saying it wrong, it may be Cooper, and as the disciples in the boat saw in the midst of the storm, and as the people of Israel saw when they were at the sea and the army was coming behind them, and as David saw, though he felt as though he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and even as Jesus himself saw behind a frowning providence, God had a smiling face, which is what we're going to see as we keep walking through the rest of Ruth. So Christian, be encouraged encouraged. You might be in chapter one. You have more chapters. Father, we're grateful for the fact that you encourage us and you help us. And you give us what we need even when we feel forsaken. Even when the frowning circumstances, the bitter circumstances seem overwhelming and too much for us, and we feel like we're going to live in those circumstances forever, might as well change my name. You're working behind the scenes in a gracious, 
gracious way. You're sovereign over these things. And for your people who are called by your name because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, you have a sure hope for us in heaven. So please, Lord, help us to know and live not in chapter one, but to keep moving on in the truth. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.